In the late 19th century in France, the cry of the artist was out of the studio and into the light. Well, today we're going out of the museum and into the light. We're checking out Europe's great art outside of the museums. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by my favorite art historian, the, the man who's helped me do a lot of teaching in art. We've co-authored a book called Europe 101, Gene Openshaw. Gene, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks. Many tourists, when they go to Europe, it's just sort of understood they're going to go to the museums. They're going to see 50 Titians hanging on the wall. Well, that's one way to see the art, but uh, what would you advise? Well, I'd say good for them for going to the museums. That's one of the great things that Europe has to offer. But there's also a better way to see art, and that is to get outside the museums. You've got to realize that art is not just the piece of art itself, but the setting and the experience that you have. It's when you enter the equation that the art experience really happens. Well, that opens it up. I mean, if, if you're limiting yourself to looking at something on a wall out of context, you're looking at a beautiful canvas. You see the great painting in the church, paid for by a church with lots of money, with an agenda, and they want you to see it this way. And they hired the greatest talent of the time to portray, you know, Jesus suffering on the cross or whatever. And you've also got the historic context. I feel like art is um, sort of the closest thing to a time tunnel experience you can get in your travels, even if you're not into beauty. If you can let the art take you back to that time, that heady time in Florence when Savonarola had just derailed the Medici and all of this uh, exciting humanism of the Renaissance and brought back in a theocracy, now you understand the context of that fresco that's at the top of the stairway in the monastery from where uh, Savonarola ran Florence for a period. That's what's so great about Europe is that in many ways Europe itself is a big museum. When you think about the churches, that have great art. You think about castles and palaces that have great art. You think about art in public spaces, neighborhoods that you see that themselves, the buildings are old and the great artists and people have lived there and walked those very same streets. So almost any place you go in Europe, you can have this art experience. And you have a government which represents a people and their interest in this aspect of their culture that will, at quite great expense, protect the old buildings and the culture. You walk down a street in Europe and you see a facade standing up, held up there by beams and, and, and buttresses. It's just saving the facade as a new building is built behind it in order to keep the visual integrity of the street in the old ways. And you go to a new office park and you find in, um, I think, advanced civilizations all over the world, a certain percent of the cost of the construction is required to be spent in modern art to make it a good people's own. And that's very important. I, I hate to even bring this up, but... But when you raise that thing about renovating things and so on, many of, of your listeners will have gone to St. Mark's Square, for example. Well, right now they're contemplating a big renovation of St. Mark's Square. And you'd think that this thing that is owned by humanity could be done in a way that would be aesthetically pleasing. But the main proposal they have right now to fund that renovation of St. Mark's Square is instead of putting up some kind of scaffolding, they are actually going to put up billboards. Advertising. Advertising to fund it. It's, uh, it is a kind of frightening idea. I, I remember reading a, a quote by the, the mayor of Venice, and he said something like, it's not beautiful, it's not ugly, it's necessary. It's and, like putting paid ads on the cover of the New York Times now. It's just sort of the economic times. They got to turn a buck out of that. I remember a decade ago, they were doing a renovation on that same square, 
And at the bell tower, they had a, a big building-sized canvas that covered the scaffolding, and on it was the Leaning Tower of Pisa, just, just to confuse people. <laughs> yeah. Well, the point is they're investing a lot to uh, update and, and renovate all the buildings as they, as they deal with the acidic air and so on. Something very important when we're traveling is to see art outside of museums. It, it just opens it up. It lets you really let the whole artistic experience breathe. Uh, one fun thing is to go to places that inspired the artists. If you go to the, the humble cottage where Edvard Grieg would compose his music on the fjord, you're engulfed in nature, and then you listen to his music, and it, it makes a little more sense. Yeah, that's a beautiful place. Uh, you know, the classic one, besides Grieg's home, is going up in Paris to Butte Montmartre, the big hill kind of on the outskirts of Paris. That's where so much of the great Impressionist art was built. You know, you can see where Van Gogh lived and Toulouse-Lautrec and so on. You can see the studio where Pablo Picasso lived when he was a young man. It, this very rugged studio, it's the place that he would paint his girlfriend, Fernand, in the nude from every possible perspective, and then over the course of several months got this idea of cobbling together those various perspectives of these nudes into a single painting, inventing cubism and revealing La Damoiselle d'Avignon, the, the groundbreaking painting that came out of this very crude studio when he was a poor artist on uh, Butte Montmartre. And that gives you a whole different appreciation of Cubism, which you're going to see whether you like it or not when you go to all these galleries around Europe. Yeah, yeah. Butte Montmartre's a wonderful place. And, uh, you know, I can think of another place when uh, you mentioned that about uh, where artists live. This one, I hate to even say it because it, it, today it is a museum, but it's the Peggy Guggenheim mm -hmm. collection in Venice. It, it is a museum. And but it was, her, it was her villa also. But it was her home where she lived right on the Grand Canal, this beautiful setting in Venice. It's now filled with her personal collection of modern art. And what's great about it, even if you're not into modern art, is you go into there and you walk into her dining room and you realize the art that's on the wall here was on the same walls when she lived here and was welcoming all of these famous people, you know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono and, you know, you can Andy make Warhol this home, Andy Warhol him. and so on, you know, and it still looks exactly like a home. Yes. Another example would be the mausoleum of Salvador Dali. You know, he, he was a great theatric marketer and entertaining artist, a, a great surrealist, and his tomb is surrounded by all of his greatest art. And it's a celebration of his life, and his body is right there in a <laughs> casket in the middle of it. And leave it to Salvador Dali to give you that sort of odd juxtaposition of his casket and his goofy art. Sounds like a surrealist joke. Yeah. It is a surrealist <laughs> joke. And, and nearby is my favorite home of any dead person in Europe. I mean, as tourists, we're always looking at the home of Karl Marx, the home of Beethoven, the Rembrandt which, by the way, is a great place to go see his studio and, and see his etchings and so on. But the home of Salvador Dali, you really get his creative spirit there. You get to know his muse, Gala, and you uh, get to know his relationship with the crude fishermen that lived all around him as he took this little humble spot north of Barcelona on the coastline. He told the, the fishermen, when you're going to paint your boats, when you're cleaning your paintbrushes, do it on my front door. <laughs> so all of the different colors of the boats are painted just in a way of cleaning the brushes on Dali's front door. All over Europe, you can connect with the art a little bit broader than in the museums. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw, and we've got on the line Stephanie from Krakow, Poland. Stephanie, thanks for your call. Hey. Are you calling from Krakow right now? Yes, we are. Wonderful. Thanks for contributing to our conversation. Do you have any thoughts on enjoying art outside of museums? My husband and I have found out that to see sculpture, we've enjoyed going to the cemeteries. 
uh, in the cities that we visited. Tell me an example. Well, Milan, the monumental cemetery there, the sculpture is, is beautiful. It's not just the historic and the old, but it's also the contemporary sculpture I that adorns all the graves. I absolutely love that museum. It's, it's my favorite experience, you could argue, in Milano. And it's Art Deco. It's Art Nouveau. It's World War I soldiers. It's uh, great romantic poets. It's, a mon- it's called the Monumental Cemetery, isn't it? Right, right. And then in Paris and Venice and Florence, every time we've gone to a city, we try to search out the cemeteries. Let's think about this, Jean. You can go to the cemetery for the Protestants in Rome. A lot of expats were in Rome in olden days, and when they died, they couldn't be, I guess they had to be buried not in a Catholic graveyard or something, so they have this place where a lot of the romantic poets, Shelley and Keats, I think, are buried. John Keats is buried, yeah. Out by the pyramid in Rome. And, uh, Stephanie, you're in Krakow. One of the most powerful cemeteries I've visited is in Krakow, where when the Nazis came in, they literally bulldozed the Jewish cemetery. And today, those broken and crushed and disfigured tombstones are actually sculptures in what remains of the Jewish cemetery. Right. In uh, Kashmir's, they have made a wall. Kazimierska or whatever. That's the, the Jewish district of Krakow. Right, right. Yeah, Stephanie mentioned the cemetery that you can visit in Venice, and that particular cemetery, San Michele, is, like everything in Venice, on an island, and you have to take yeah. a boat there, and that's all take that's a boat on over. Yeah, and it's wonderful, and you just walk, and you, you enter this city of the dead. Um, most of the people that you wouldn't know, but they often put the photograph of the dead person on there, and you feel like you know these people. That adds a lot in cultures where they do that. Stephanie, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. And Nate is on the phone in Orem, Utah. Nate, thoughts on art outside of museums? Some of the most interesting art that I've ever seen has been in Vienna, Austria, the Central Friedhof, the Central Cemetery. It was one that was actually commissioned in the 1800s, and it was a failure because people wanted to put their loved ones in their own local cemeteries. Then the idea was come upon, well, let's dig up all the famous people that we know of. Yeah, Beethoven, Brahms, Schubert, yeah. They're all dug up and moved to the Central Friedhof? Yes, they were all dug up, moved to the Central Friedhof, and then all the sculptors and artists are in their own groups. The composers are in their own group, and there's just beautiful sculptures on top of the artists. Some of them, they did their own work. When my wife lived in Austria for a couple of years... Uh, she learned that the death culture in Austria was really important, and you saved from when you were a little kid in order to get your tombstone. Wow. And so there is amazing tombstones and, and things around. So the Austrians take a great interest in where their mortal remains will spend the the rest of time. Yes. I, know, I know in uh, Hallstatt, uh, the space is very limited, so you, you can stay in the cemetery only as long as your descendants will pay the rent on that plot. <laughs> yeah, and as and soon as there's been three or four generations, I don't care how good a guy you are, they stop paying <laughs> the rent on you. Then they take you up and they clean you off and they stack your uh, skull in the, in the bone house and make room for uh, other people whose relatives care more to pay the rent on your tombstone. But after they dug up all the people and put them in the Friedhof, it, it became really popular, the Central Friedhof. Okay, so when we go to Vienna, we want to go to the Central Friedhof and see the tombs of... Uh, and they sort of jump-started it by putting in Beethoven and Brahms and Mahler and, and those guys. 
and the artist section is actually right next to the composer section. Okay. All over okay. Europe, we've got people that have a more or less interest of uh, cemeteries. In Paris, there's actually enough interest in the cemeteries to keep a book in print called Permanent Parisians. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're thinking about art for the living and the dead outside of museums. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw. Gene co-authors an uh, art book that I've written for travelers called Europe 101. Gene, when we travel through Europe, we see a lot of emphasis put on public art. We have fountains, sculpture parks, uh, piazzas, even freeway art in France. People appreciate that today. They're willing to pay for it, it seems like. Yeah, it's a truism that Europe is going to pay more for public art. Now, I think in America, only maybe 10% of American art is funded with the government, where in Europe, it's more like 80% is funded by the government. And so they kind of view it as a public service in the same way that in our country, we offer you know, public roads and we offer uh, libraries for use and so on. And for them, the visual experience is just as important. So you've got fountains in public areas. You've got uh, artists that are commissioned to do statues. It's just this general notion that you don't go to a museum to see a piece of art hanging on the wall. The art is the bigger experience. You, you go out for your cup of coffee, you're surrounded by harmonious architecture. Yeah. And at great expense, they've kept those facades up because you're going to sit and pay too much for a cup of coffee and you want to look at a beautiful Mozart facade or whatever. Yeah. But of course, they've got a long tradition of doing that. If you think about public art... You're talking about, heck, you're talking about the Acropolis, which was a publicly funded program in Athens after their entire city had been destroyed by the Persians to rebuild the central part of their city with all of these temples. And this was no cinder block temple. I mean, this thing is <laughs> incredible aesthetics. Yes, and, and using only the finest of materials and all of it public funded. Now, when we visit the churches, that is, I got to say, whether it's a pagan temple or a Christian church, you see the priority for the art. And when you go to the churches today in Europe, it is a place to see the great art. I am constantly impressed as how you can wait in a long line to see a Michelangelo in a museum, or you can just know what church to go to, and you can see a great Michelangelo statue right there. Yeah. You can go to the Church of the Ferrari in Venice. That's one of my favorite places. Fra oh, yeah. The Ferrari is great. It's got two of Titian's most impressive altarpieces. You know, we're talking about uh, funeral art, and the Ferrari's got a couple of big tombs there. You Canova. know, uh, this pyramid-shaped tomb where the artist is— actually, it's not even the artist. Canova is not buried inside there. Only his heart is put inside there. But it is a memorial to him, and then outside they've got statues of a muse who's crying, and, you know, even the Lion of Venice is walking up to the front door of that tomb, and he's got tears in his eyes. We have Sherry on the phone in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Sherry, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I just wanted to say that when we look for art, you can look anywhere, because we were in Rome, and we went into a hardware store, which is one of our favorite places to shop for souvenirs, and we were looking at the hardware, looked up at the ceiling, and here's a wonderful fresco. The hardware store had been a palace. Oh, my goodness. You know what one of my favorite uh, art experiences is? It's very similar to that. It's also in a store in, in Paris, the Galleries Lafayette, um, a department store. And those places, when they were built in the 19th century, were built to be artistic uh, cathedrals to shopping. You go in there, and you look up into the ceiling, and you see this wonderful kind of stained glass dome that arches over it. And when you're in there, obviously their intent was to make you buy more, but you feel like you're in these elegant settings. 
a lot of the stores, a lot of the public buildings in Europe, whether it's a post office or whether it's a place where you can buy your uh, napkins, are intended to have that artistic experience. That artistic flair. And you get that when you find the great gallerias in uh, Italy, in Milano and in Napoli. You've got these incredible galleries made from the 1870s celebrating the unification of Italy, and they are these vast halls with elegant shops under huge arcades, all beautifully decorated. I mean, you look on the floor and the mosaic work in the ceiling and the fine ironwork, and you go, wow, they had a real appreciation for the artistic fine points. And it kept you dry when it rained. And it kept you ready to spend some money. Sherry, thanks for your call. Thank you. Spencer's on the phone in Austin, Texas. Yes. Uh, I recently did six months in Europe, and one of my favorite places to see art was actually in the streets of Granada. There's just graffiti everywhere. Um, most graffiti in Europe, and including a lot of places in Granada, are just kids running around spray-painting their initials or whatever it is that they do on the walls. But in Granada, there's these artists that on side streets, especially in uh, the Albaizen area, it's, it's just incredible art. I have all these wonderful photographs of really detailed and, and creative art spray-painted on random alley walls. Now, Spencer, what I noticed all over Spain was a lot of stencil graffiti. Are you talking about that stencil uh, graffiti? Some of it stencil graffiti, but no. Uh, there, I mean, there's You're talking very, political very, murals. Uh, yeah, there are some that are political, but there were some that were just for fun, like there'd be um, a hole in a wall, and they, it was a really cool graffiti art of a little boy looking up, and it was like kind of like a cloud thought, and you look out, and there's over the city from the Albaicen, and it's a little boy dreaming about, it looks like the city. Uh, cracks and walls are used as pieces of the art. Incorporated um, right into the art. Right, right. And there are whole alleys that appear to be mostly abandoned, like people don't use them very often. And it's kind of off and out of the way. You had to search for it. But there's some really incredible, it looks like just for the sake of doing it, intricate art. There's cities that sort of enable people to do this in, in right. Berlin. And what yeah. the Berlin Wall has got that long, what's the East Side Gallery? Yeah, the East Side Gallery, that was one of the coolest things I saw as well in terms of non-traditional art um, away from the museum. Yeah, Spencer has touched on something that is a very big thing in Europe. It, it's often called street art, it's kind of a catch-all name, street art. Uh, other people would call it vandalism, because that's right. really what it is, is unauthorized art. It, it covers everything from graffiti, people, you know, spray painting on a wall, to um, artists who will paint on the sidewalk and create this great three-dimensional illusion. Sometimes it just even involves like street musicians who are performing in an unauthorized place. On the positive side, it's sort of the, the people's art. It's organic. It's coming right up from the grassroots. It's coming right up from the grassroots yeah. and, and is the flip side of publicly funded art. It seems like in Granada, though, the artists that were really good, there, there's one, I found his house. His whole house is covered in this graffiti, and all the streets around it are sort of equally, and they're very inspirational. You know, an old woman praying, uh, children playing the piano, a kid riding a bike looking happy, joyous. I put them all on my Flickr, if that matters. It, it was really incredible, and the really good artists, it appears, are thoughtful about where they put it. It seemed to be on, on back alleys and not on main streets, and you know they didn't put graffiti on churches and banks and yeah. institutional places. 
They're thoughtful about that. I've got several friends that collect this sort of, uh, I know a little bit about stencil graffiti because I've traveled with people who are really into that. And, you know, I never even noticed it before. Like Gene yeah. said, I just thought of it as, as vandalism. And, and it's then, everywhere. It's a yeah, subculture. all over. I think aloud, yeah. You know, Judith from Omaha, Nebraska just emailed us and she says, I'm a fan of contemporary and urban art and was wondering what are some of the best places to see street art and outdoor modern art in Europe? So, Spencer, you really like Granada. Granada was, you have to go looking for it because it's just not on the main streets. That pushes you out into the side streets. One of the highlights for me, because I like this political mural art, is going up to Northern Ireland and in troubled cities. And entire buildings are covered with powerful murals, uh, either sympathetic with the Protestant cause or the Catholic cause, or I should say Republican and Unionist causes. Gene, do you have any favorite areas for street art? Uh, Rather than getting specific about geography, I often find in almost any city a place where you'll find that is near the train stations. Many Mm. is the time I boarded a train and you're clacking your way out of the station, and uh, there's just yeah. all these ugly brick walls and so on, and then suddenly you come across a great piece of art that otherwise you're going to be looking at a dirt-grimed wall. Bilbao and San Sebastian were that way. Uh, mm-hmm. That goes along with the, the political and sectarian parts guess, of that as well. I guess I would challenge some of our older or more conservative uh, travelers to remember it, it, it might be good to give it a positive spin instead of a that's vandalism kind of spin. I was traveling with my son, who really likes this, what looks like gang art to me, you know, all this graffiti art tagging these buildings. And I, I started looking at it a little bit differently, like I did the stencil graffiti. And it is the voice of a subculture. And yeah. it's there I, when you know where to look. I mean, I'll tell you what, there was one, I wish I could remember the street. If you go up the road that goes toward the Alhambra, you, you can see down over this area, and I think it's to the south. Okay. Um, there's one, it's a little boy, and he's got a, a PlayStation 2 controller in his hand. And there's two vultures around him and they're wearing top hats with money signs and euro signs on them and the phrase in spanish underneath of it says um this is what is teaching our children or these are our children's new parents or something along those lines it was very political it was very oh, yeah. there's a lot of this sensitivity about globalization and what right. it's doing to our soul and Absolutely. how everybody's just becoming a barcode my, my friend who's uh, collects this kind of art actually has a tattoo which is a barcode of his name so he's sort of tuned into that sort of thing spencer <laughs> thanks for your call Thank you very much. You know, something related to that, Gene, is pub art. I just love to go into drinking places anywhere in Europe and see how they decorate their place for their local clientele. And it's it's not famous art, but it's stuff that really connects with the local clientele, and they can relate to it. Are you talking dogs playing poker, that kind of not art? Not that and, kind of stuff. Okay. I'm talking, you know, the uh, the patriotism or the sectarian passions. You go to a, a Protestant pub in the north of uh, Ireland, it's decorated differently than a, a Catholic pub in the north of Ireland, this sort of thing. Mike's on the phone in Austin, Texas. Mike, thanks for the call. Hi, Rick. In May, I went to Italy, and I went to Cinque Terre, where you always recommend. That's our second or third time there, me and my wife. And uh, we decided to go to the main city just north of there in Levanto. We didn't know anything about it, but we just happened to stumble on uh, a lemon festival they were having. And they, <laughs> that's, they had, that's sort of an action art. Yeah. You know, on the streets, though, like what happened is all the people came out in front of their houses and drew with chalk on the streets, like a design, like some were geometric, some were religious, some were really elaborate, and some were simple. And kids, old people, you can see there's a competition going on between some of the neighbors. And for miles through the main town in uh, Levanto, they drew these designs on the street. I think they were worshiping a lemon goddess, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) 
and, and they filled in the drawings with uh, natural materials, flower petals, coffee grounds. Oh, I like that. I've seen that in churches and so on on certain holy days. They make these patterns on the floor with whatever is the local uh, flowers or what represents their economy and their cuisine and their culture. Yeah. Uh, I saw the the children, it seemed like their task was to go off in the mountains around Cinque Terre on the nice treks and pick just baskets and baskets full of flower petals. All right. Well, that's something to look for in our travels. You know, if you can be in these towns during their festivals, you're certainly going to get that sort of uh, exuberant culture. Yeah. If, if you think about art and the art experience as being a, more a multimedia type of experience than a local festival with its folk art, with its traditions, with its bands, its people wearing their uniforms with the floats and, the, and the flags and the cuisine and so on, a festival is itself... It's an art festival. ...is an art festival. Thanks, Mike, for the call. Happy Lemon Festival. <laughs> you too. Adam in Fresno, California. Adam, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How you doing? Good. We're talking about art outside of the museums, uh, sort of a different kind of art. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my favorite kind of outdoor art in Europe is definitely the street musicians that you can find in just about any touristy or non-touristy town. Some of the most famous are the ones that ply the metro in Paris. But you're right, you'll find them all over. You'll find string quartets playing out in the squares in Munich. Uh, You'll find guys playing the accordion next to a fountain down in Rome. One of the things I like about the street musicians in the metro in Paris is they have a very interesting form of street performer there. You'll be riding the metro, a lady gets on, and instead of playing an instrument or singing a song or whatever, she just stands at the end of the car and starts to talk, obviously in French. And what she does is she tells her sad story of woe, of what has brought her to this place in life. And then after about a minute, she walks through and takes collections. It's a very different form of street theater. Maybe Uh, more effective than playing an accordion. I've heard some bad accordion players. (laughs) Well, all over Eastern Europe, there's good accordion players coming in from Russia and Romania. And you notice there's a lot of people, as these economies are in tough times, they'll go to more wealthy countries and they'll take their musical talents with them and they'll just sit in the corner and actually make a living by performing that way. I was just in Florence and I noticed that the city is actually giving people license to have the very best place in town every night at 11 or something like this so they can perform quality street music with the uh, authorization of the city in, in Florence on the Ponte Vecchio. It's like going to a a paid concert almost, but you're sitting there on the Ponte Vecchio in a very romantic setting listening to some quality musicians. Adam, thanks for the call. Thank you. Nicole's on the phone from Dallas. Hi there. What is your experience Uh, with art? I wanted to mention two things. Um, The first thing I thought of while I was on hold, and I'm not sure if anybody mentioned it yet, the flower carpet in Brussels. I was thinking about that when we were talking about the uh, the local flowers and everything decorating the church floor or the main square, the greatest square in Europe, some people say, in Brussels. Tell us about that. Uh, every other year, and it would be an even-numbered year, in mid-August, someone designs a traditional carpet design for the entirety of Grand Place, and it is recreated in flowers. It's only up for three days over a weekend, so you have to be there the right time. And it has all the minute detail of a tapestry, almost, it seems like. Almost. And actually, that reminds me of the other favorite outside the museum art um, I've seen is the Gobelin Tapestry Workshop in Paris. It's just absolutely fascinating to take the tour, even if you don't understand French. That's great because everybody sees the great tapestries hanging on the palace walls and so on, but you actually went to Europe's most famous workshop for tapestries, Gobelin, in Paris, and they welcome tourists? 
They do. Um, they only have tours on a certain schedule during the day, and they're only in French. But even if you can't understand what they're telling you, your eyes can certainly appreciate the work that you're seeing created right in front of you by these people that are maintaining this ancient craft in the textile arts. It's beautiful. I've seen some great handiwork done, tapestries, but also things like lace making that you see in the Low Countries. These old ladies whose eyes are going, they got to wear their eyeglasses, and they're sitting there with about two dozen bobbins, and they're sitting there weaving them into this intricate pattern, somehow following this pattern they have inside their heads that's been drilled into them, you know, for generations and creating these very intricate designs. I love seeing artists at work. And lovingly handing that down to the next generation as younger students are around them watching this time-honored art form. One other thing I would mention about the Gobelin tapestries, those tapestries are typically destined for display in government buildings or embassies, so you'll never have a chance to see the finished products except in the workshop. That's interesting because I was in, I believe it was Stockholm, and there was some festival. They opened up the Royal Palace in Stockholm, and I got to see one of these modern, precious tapestry works of art that you're talking about. And it just blew me away to see the quality of tapestry work done in our generation, uh, designed for behind closed doors in the palaces and so on, that maybe in a couple hundred years that will be uh, open for the tourists. And it's nice to know that that art form is alive and well as we move deeper into the 21st century. Nicole, thanks for your call. Goodbye. Thank you. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've been joined by Gene Openshaw, who co-authors a book with me called Europe 101. We've been talking about enjoying art outside of the museums. You know, Gene... The, the whole idea is open up your senses, open up your appreciation, give art an extra dimension. Can you give us a parting thought on, on how we might incorporate that into our travels to get more out of our travels from an art appreciation point of view? Yeah, I, I like the fact that you use the word dimension. We often think as just, you know, a painting is art, and that's all it is in a museum. But, you know, really that's just a two-dimensional object. And to experience art or experience the world with the full multimedia experience that Europe offers, that's what people tend to come away with. You know, I think, for example, of like, say, being in Venice in St. Mark's Square or something like that. The sun's going down, the lanterns are starting to come on, the tourists go home. You're not necessarily staring at a painting, but you turn your eyes and you look and you catch a statue somewhere. That's beautiful in and of itself. Now add in the other senses that you're experiencing at the time. The cafe orchestra is playing a little music there. It's a song that reminds you of, of your youth or of someone that you once loved or something. And so now you've got the emotions going. A cool breeze is coming off the sea. You can feel that. You can smell the sea. And you're sitting there sipping a glass of Valpolicella wine. You know, you're, you're, all of your senses are engaged, and that really is what the art experience is about, an art outside of museums. Giving art every dimension possible, experiencing the art, the love of life that we find when we explore this fascinating world. Gene Openshaw, thank you very much. Thank you.